I have a, a wonderful, wonderful passage to teach this morning. I, this is the last of our series of messages on our mission statement, and I have just been dying to get to this, uh, this chapter. Uh, if you look at my Bible, you can see that this particular chapter is falling right out of it because it's one that I uh, refer to uh, again and again, and it's uh, found in one of the most unlikeliest spots. It's the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Uh, if you can find the books of Chronicles, those are larger books. Ezra follows Chronicles, and then uh, Nehemiah. The particular aspect of our mission statement that I want to talk about this morning is teaching. And I want to read the statement that's found uh, in that uh, paper that was produced by the elders. Teaching is instruction based on the Word of God that reiterates, explains, and applies the words of the biblical writers. We are convinced that the Bible is God's Word, wholly inspired by His Spirit, and that the proclamation of that Word is the foundation of all ministry. Our goal is to provide an, an, an environment in which that word is honored and made available to all ages. Our intent is to teach the scriptures in such a way that all members of this body will be enlightened, encouraged, reproved, corrected, trained in righteousness, and drawn to love God and his people. We believe that through God's word we have the opportunity to know God. As we come to know him, we come more and more like him. Thus, his word and our submission to it is not burdensome, but an avenue to the freedom and joy of knowing him. Now, in order to draw out the implications of this statement, I want to introduce you to a teacher. Uh, he is a master teacher. Uh, Ezra the scribe. And in order to do so, we have to go back about 2,400 years to the 5th century uh, B.C. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to uh, Nehemiah, because this is not a book that most people are uh, very familiar with. In the 6th century, the Babylonians sacked and burned the city of Jerusalem and deported the population off across the Euphrates uh, into Babylon. They uh, were there approximately 70 years. There, there were a number of returns under various leaders, Nehemiah, Joshua the high priest, Ezra the scribe. These uh, migrations or returns are described by Jews today as the Aliyah, the, the going up to Jerusalem. There were a series of them. They went back first to rebuild the altar and then to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the city and the walls of the city. And when we pick up the story here in Nehemiah 8, the city and its walls have been restored, and as the text tells us, the people were at rest. Let me read the first uh, verse. Actually, let me back up into chapter 7 and read the last part of uh, chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded uh, for Israel. And as you may know, by law, every 
male in Israel had to present himself before the Lord in Jerusalem three times a year. These were important uh, occasions. In the seventh month of the year, men were accompanied by their by their families. And they all camped out together in Jerusalem. Uh, this is called in the Old Testament the Feast of Tabernacles, actually the Feast of Tents. Because people would gather from all over Israel and they would build little booths, little tents out of sticks and leaves and they would camp out. Reminds me a lot of our of our family camp up in Ponderosa Park. Uh, people that lived in Jerusalem would jerry-rig tents on the top of their houses. As you know, houses were flat in those days and they would put little tents up there and they would all sleep out. Others would... Uh, put up tents in the squares and on the streets, and uh, there were thousands of Israelites at this time. They would gather from all over Israel and and, uh, would camp out. And it just must have been a wonderful time. I can imagine children uh, meeting friends and relatives that they hadn't seen for years, playing in the streets around Jerusalem, and adults sitting around catching uh, catching up on the news. This occasion was essentially a harvest festival. It's a lot like our Thanksgiving festival used to be. It's supposed to be. Time for thanking God for His largesse, His grace, His His goodness. It was intended to be a reminder to Israel of the wilderness experience when they lived in tents and God provided for their needs. He gave them bread from heaven and He gave them water and honey from uh, the most unlikely places, and uh, fed them, clothed them. Their clothes didn't wear out, Deuteronomy says. Uh, their shoes didn't even wear out. God provided for them wonderfully. And so this uh, this harvest festival was really a way of remembering that everything that they received came from, from God. It was a gala occasion. It's the occasion that's envisioned here in, in Nehemiah. It was the seventh month, and Families began to gather in Jerusalem in the square near the water gate of Jerusalem. The square is a, is a large marketplace, what Arabs call a souk, a place where business and commerce, people would gather there to purchase food, <coughs> clothing, and just stand around and talk. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, this, is, this square was located in the southeast corner of the city, right by one of the large gates, the water gate, down by the Pool of Siloam. All the people gathered there. Now the reason they gathered there on this particular occasion is because Moses had stipulated that every seven years they were to be there for a gigantic teach-in. Now, I don't know if you, if you recall that term, but back in the 60s and 70s when I was working with students, that was a favorite term. We used to have all-day teach-ins. And we would uh, we'd gather students and we would spend the whole day teaching the scriptures to them. And that's exactly what this was. It was one immense teach-in that began early in the morning and, and went on until, uh, until noon. And uh, when the people gathered, they called for Ezra, the scribe. Uh, in the latter part of verse 1, they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. The uh, book of Moses, of course, is the first five books of the Bible. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Now, they may have had other portions of the Scripture. They certainly had the traditions that had been passed down. But uh, for them, unquestionably, this was the Scriptures. This was the word from their great prophet, Moses. And they called for Ezra to, to read the Scriptures and to teach them uh, from, uh, from God's word. Now, Ezra is described here as a scribe. And uh, as you know, the scribes get a lot of bad press, uh, deservedly so, in the New Testament, because they were Jesus' stiffest opponents. But originally, a scribe was simply a, a Bible teacher. Uh, in that sense, I'm a scribe, and so are the growth group leaders, and the women that lead the women's studies, and Doug Gamble when he teaches the men's fellowship, and... Uh, Others that are involved in teaching, teaching in the Sunday school, they're, they're basically scribes. Our task is to invest ourselves in the Word of God, to draw from it its meaning, and then to impart uh, the truth to others. Ezra had come to Ju- Judah about uh, 13 years uh, before with the second wave of returnees from Babylon. This is what's said of him in the book of Ezra. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of, of Moses. Uh, that term that's translated well-versed actually means diligent. It's used in Proverbs of a man who's diligent in his business. This was, a, this was a student. This was a man who gave himself to knowing the Word. He was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for, uh, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun, <coughs> excuse me, the king's Artaxerxes. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of his God was on him. That statement is made a number of times about Ezra. The gracious hand of God was upon him. Four, this is the reason why God was with him. He had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. There is uh, history in the making in that, in that verse. The word translated study here is the, is the Hebrew derash from which the word midrash comes from. You may have heard that term. You may have uh, heard Jews use that term. The midrash is a collection of the interpretations of all the rabbis. And the rabbis say that uh, Ezra was the first of those to so interpret the scripture. The word that's translated to teach here is a word from which the word Talmud comes. And I think all of you are familiar with the Talmud, which is an encyclopedic collection of all of the interpretation of the rabbis dating well before Jesus' time. And again, these are, are, Ezra is said to be the first of the great Talmudic uh, scholars. But for myself, I think the most important term is the statement that's made, phrase is the statement that's made about Ezra. He devoted himself to studying the word and doing it and teaching in Israel's statute and judgments. He was a devoted student of, of the word. Wanted to know it with all of his heart. He set his heart, literally, to know the word of God and to teach it to others. We've talked so often about the uh, process by which the word becomes known. Uh, one person invests himself, herself in getting to know the scriptures and then imparts that truth to others. That's, that's what a teacher does. 
Study the Word. And you give it away to others. One Puritan scholar said uh, that we must not slightly slubber over God's work. Uh, word. Uh, slubber is an old word that uh, means to dabble at, to dab at things, to treat things carelessly. We need to uh, be uh, good students of the Word. To learn what the text means and what it means today. And then we must relate that truth to life. The issue is one of yoking head and heart. It's not a matter of, of knowing what the Scriptures say. It, it's a matter of of relating the truth of Scripture to life. We have to live in two worlds, our current world, our current culture, and understand what men and women are looking for and what they need, what they hunger for, and understand the text and then bringing the two together. You don't have to make the Scriptures relative. You simply have to show its its, uh, uh, relevant. You don't have to make the Scriptures relevant. They are relevant. It's a matter of showing their relevancy in terms of its application for today. Now, Ezra was asked to read the Scriptures to the people as they gathered in the square before the water gate. Let's begin reading with uh, verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand, that is, children who were old enough to understand the reading. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively uh, to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah and then a bunch of unpronounceable names that I'm simply not going to try to read. And then Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their heads and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped their Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, and again a number of uh, difficult names, instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. That one verse summarizes the task of biblical exposition. Verse 8. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Now I want to make some observations uh, briefly about this this teaching, Ezra's method. It's intriguing uh, to me. In the first place, it included entire families, men, women, and children. There's something to be said for including children in worship and in teaching. I think that's one of the strong elements of our Sunday evening service. We're able there to incorporate our children in, into it. They have a chance to worship with their, uh, with their families. Uh, Matthew Henry, an expositor of another, another age, in his uh, quaint uh, old world way said this, Masters of families should bring their Families with them to the public worship of God so they may acquaint themselves with the word of God and attend on the means of grace. Little ones, as they come to reason, must be trained up in religion. 
good works. There is, however, this one proviso. Ezra makes it very clear that uh, they should be children that can understand. It is a shame, I believe, to bore little children with the Word of God. If we need it, this is the biblical justification for age-graded curricula and, and instruction. The Word has to be brought down to a level that little children can understand. I uh, grew up in a church uh, that did not have a, a, a children's chapel, children's church, so I had to sit on hard benches with my parents. And uh, I was bored out of my skull. I, I counted every tile in the ceiling. Uh, my little feet would go to sleep hanging off of the uh, pew, and shortly after, other parts of my anatomy would uh, follow. And uh, it was just a dreadful uh, experience to me. All I remember during those years was Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer, who is the founder of Dallas Seminary, coming to speak. And we had a pulpit that had wooden crenellations all across the top, wooden blocks, looked like parapets in a, in a castle. And he was pounding on the pulpit, and one of those blocks fell off and landed on the... the uh, communion table and fell off on the floor and I got the giggles and I couldn't stop laughing through the rest of the service for about five or six years. That's all I remember about those, uh, all those services. Had to bring the truth to children on a level that they can, can understand. But that's something that parents have to determine. You know where your children are and if they can understand the word, then it's appropriate to bring them into a worship service and let them participate in the teaching and the worship that the adults are engaged in. second thing that intrigues me is the uh, fact that they built a tower, tall tower, wooden tower, and Ezra stood on that tower, and from that high pulpit he, he read the word and he preached from it. I think that's probably the origin of the high pulpit in some of our more liturgical churches. Uh, when I When I was... Uh, I was on the staff of the uh, Stanford Chapel when I was ministering to university students, and I would occasionally read Scripture in chapel services, and there was a stairway that went up to the high pulpit. I was always afraid I was going to trip over my robe and, and fall out of the thing. I had already worked out my exit line if I did. As they carried me out, I was going to say, thus endeth the reading. <laughs> but... There's something to be said for this whole procedure of exalting the Word of God. You notice they stood up when they read the Scriptures. Uh, just a way of showing reverence. I, I don't think that they stood up the entire six hours that Ezra taught. But they stood up in the beginning in order to show their, their love for the Word and their worship and respect. And then they were seated while, while he taught. But uh, Ezra stayed up on that that tower where he could be seen and he could be heard. I get the impression from the description that, that there were other readers who spelled Ezra from time to time because they didn't have public address systems. He had to count on his voice in sheer volume. Uh, this was uh, in an age before they, of course, before they had public address uh, systems. And so people, I think, would spell him, and then there seemed to be other Levites that stationed themselves out through the crowd, and they would repeat the reading 
as Ezra read it so that everyone can uh, could hear. Uh, just as an aside, I, I think it's important to provide an environment where people aren't distracted when they hear the word taught, where they can focus on the word and, and on the Lord. They can hear what's being said. That, that's why we have invested in a in a fairly expensive public address system here because we want you to be able to hear. A friend of mine says when Satan fell, I know he fell into the uh, church uh, public address system. You know, all the squawks and squeals and dead spots and whatnot prevent you from from focusing on the Word of God. And I think we have to provide an, an atmosphere where people can can concentrate on the one thing that's really important during the teaching, which is God and, and His Word. I've always thought that that atmosphere is very, very important. It struck me one day in reading the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I think it's Luke that says there was Jesus had them sit down. And almost as an afterthought, a throwaway line, he said there was much grass in that place. And I'd read that a hundred times and never thought about it until I realized what, what the gospel, what the author of the gospel was trying to say. The Lord was trying to make people comfortable. There isn't much grass in the Middle East. And he located a spot where there was grass so they could sit down and, and they, uh, could concentrate on what the, uh, on what, what, what was being said. Uh, George MacDonald said, The clergy should see, for it is their business to see, that their people have no occasion to think of their bodies at all while they're in church. They have enough ado to think of the truth. I like that. Just to be able to forget yourself and to relax and listen to the Word being taught. The third thing I noticed about this uh, about this teaching was that Ezra brought his Bible with him. He had the scroll of the Pentateuch with him, and, and he displayed it before the people. Now, there's something highly symbolic in that because their teaching ought to arise out of the Word of God. Good Bible teaching always takes its source from what, what God has said. We simply, as our statement says, reiterate what God has has already said. Matthew Henry said, Ministers, when they go to the pulpit, should take their Bibles with them. Ezra did so. Thence they must fetch their knowledge. According to that rule, they must speak and must show that they do so. Our authority does not reside in ourselves. It resides in the Word of God. Now, uh, verse 8 is the verse that is particularly significant. Ezra and his fellow priests read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. In that one sentence, the author of Nehemiah, uh, who was either Nehemiah or Ezra, I believe, captured the essence of biblical exposition. We're told that Ezra and his companions read the word, making it clear. Now, actually, the word is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament, translated. Because here's the problem. The, the Bible, their Bible, our Bible, uh, Jewish Bible, is written in Hebrew, classical Hebrew. It's the same Hebrew that's spoken today in, in Israel. They adopted it when Israel became a state. The people in that crowd could not understand Hebrew. They couldn't read it. They couldn't understand it because they had spent 70 years in Babylon and the language of Babylon was Aramaic. Uh, it is a cognate language with Hebrew, like 
French and uh, Spanish are to English. But it was a different language. And therefore, the people would have no idea what Ezra was saying if he read the Pentateuch in Hebrew. It like be like someone reading the Bible in Latin to us today, except for those of you that took Latin in high school. Uh, what, what, what Ezra did was this. He read the scriptures, and as he read the scriptures, apparently there were little groups that would form. At least this is the impression I get. Small groups. And those, in those small groups, the other priests and Levites, the other scribes, would translate the text into Aramaic, and then they would explain it to people. That's what Bible study is, you see. And we have a lot of translations today. It really isn't essential to know the original languages in order to do a thorough Bible study. Sometimes it's helpful, but it's not absolutely essential. But these translations do for us what these uh, scribes were doing for the people. It translates the language of the Bible into contemporary speech, our language, and then a, the teacher then expounds upon that, that translation. simply says again, uh, what the prophets and the apostles have said. The text says that Ezra and his fellow readers gave the meaning so that people could understand what is being read. To give the meaning is simply to uh, explain it, to interpret so that others uh, can understand. Uh, someone has written, those who hear the word should understand it, else it is to them the empty sound of words. It's therefore required of teachers that they explain the word and give the sense of it. Reading is good. Teaching is good, but expounding makes reading the better understood and preaching the more convincing. This is what we call today expository preaching. My definition of expository preaching is that it is simply saying again what the prophets and the apostles have said. I like the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says, we have set aside uh, psychological uh, mechanisms and ways of manipulating people, and, and what we do is we simply declare the Word of God. And the word that he uses has the idea of, of taking the top off of something so that it expresses itself. We just let the Bible speak for itself. That's the idea. And the result, he says, is that that your conscience has confirmed it. That's the interesting thing about the Word of God. You really don't have to embellish it to any great extent. You just you let it speak for itself. And our, our consciences respond. There's a kind of sympathetic vibration that's set up in our heart, and our consciences. that's right, that's right, that's true. Now that, for me, is the power of expository teaching or expository preaching. It is more authoritative because we are simply saying again what the prophets and the apostles have said. It is more memorable because you can go back to the text and you can reproduce it in your own, in your own thinking. Any of you will be able to go back to this Nehemiah passage and read it and say, oh yes, that's what teaching is, is all about. And the results follow, verses 9 through 12. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. 
Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Isn't this interesting? The immediate reaction to the proclamation of the word was grief, sadness, sorrow, conviction. As in the priest says, Don't be sad. Go eat and drink. Have a party. Because that is what the Word ought to do. It ought to produce colossal joy. And if we're not teaching the Word to that end, we're missing the point. Now, I've been in some churches, and you have too, where, uh, where I, I just got battered the whole, the whole meeting. I was just told how awful I was, and I agree, I am. But my goodness, you get beat up enough in the world without getting beat up in, you know, in, in, in services. I, that seems to me to be a failure to do what, what Isaiah was told to do. Comfort my people. Comfort my people. The Bible ought to afflict the comfortable, as my friend Ray Stebney used to say, but it also ought to comfort the afflicted. We need to we need to send people out with a message of comfort. Now they need to hear about sin, and they need to to hear about the need for repentance from sin. That's a part of the the, the passage that was read earlier. The word of God is intended to convict us. You see happening in your own heart what happened that day that the scriptures were read to Israel. As they read it, they began to see how far short they they fell, and they began to weep under the terrible conviction of the Word of God. The Word has that effect upon us. It is law. The, the, that stern word, be holy because I am holy, is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament a number of times in, in both Testaments. Be as holy as God. That, that's, that's the best summation of the law that I can think of. But we have to understand the function of the law. The law cannot change us. There's no mechanism in the law to make us better. All the law can do is show us the character of God and show us how far short we fall. Paul makes that very clear in Romans. It's a schoolmaster. It's like a tutor that, that, that gives you a rap on the side of the head every time you're out of line. Every time you make a mistake. Every time you come up with the wrong sum. Whack! That's what the law does. And, and there, there, there must be an element of law in our teaching in the sense that we tell people what God is like, we show forth His character, and we call people to repentance. But if that's all we do, we, we just bludgeon people. And they, and they go out discouraged, depressed, and uh, they, they, they're not comforted. They're only afflicted. Now, when I, I, I describe the, the process like a three-layer club sandwich, the first layer is, is the law. You're to measure up to the character of God. The second layer is power. This is precept. This is power. Those wonderful promises that God is in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And He wants to work through our mind, emotions, and will. 
to bring obedience, to bring about obedience. A wonderful statement in, in, in uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. God is faithful and He will do it. A wonderful promise to, to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy. Even if you're faithless, God abides faithful. Paul says to the people in Philippi, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That awareness that we have within us the very Spirit of Christ, the power of Christ to be what God has called us to be. So with the very same breath in which we teach law, we have to teach enablement, provision, and power. But there's another layer of the sandwich. We have to realize that there will be no perfection this side of heaven. It's when we see His face that we're going to become like Him. And so underneath are the everlasting arms. These, one, that these wonderful promises of forgiveness. You cannot out the grace of God. I've said that over and over and over again in the years that I have taught you. You cannot go so far that you cannot be forgiven. Your most abject failure is simply an opportunity for God to, to show His grace. That's why, you see, the Levite said, look, don't be sad. Remember what you, what, what we read in Deuteronomy, that God is a compassionate God. He's a loving God. Forgiving generation after generation of those who fail. It's the kind of God He is. So you, that's, that's the whole counsel of God. You can't just batter people with the law. The law is a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. So they can hear of His grace and His forgiveness and His power. And that's the message that has to be preached. And so the uh, Leomites say, hey, don't, don't go out depressed. Go out and have a party. Go out and eat, drink, enjoy yourselves. That's the way we ought to walk out of this congregation, this auditorium on Sunday mornings, full of colossal joy. Oh yeah, we're failures. We're all sinful. But we have the power of Christ that's changing us. And we have that wonderful ongoing forgiveness that will never end. And one of these days, he's going he's gonna to wrap up the process and we're, we're going to be just exactly like, like him. Oh, I'd love to fill us with joy. And that's why Ezra said, look, the, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We take joy in the Lord. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And in case you didn't get it, again I say, rejoice in the Lord. Not in ourselves, not in what we're doing, but in what God is, is doing in us. I had one of these, uh, Mad urges this last week to do some writing on that, on that phrase, and this is what I came up with. I'm fascinated by Nehemiah 8.8. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Actually, I, I forgot to mention the, in the Hebrew text, that word strength is place of strength. It's a place to which we can, can go and find strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The, the noun translated joy in this text means colossal joy. It's a rare word occurring in only two places in the Old Testament. Here and in 1 Chronicles 16.27. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. The sad heart tires in a mile is an old saying. 
There's a lot of difference between the focus and energy of a glad, joyous heart and the morbid inertia of a gloomy, depressed soul. One leaps to the task, the other creeps to it. If we want to keep going, we must keep a joyful heart. Joy equips us for the long haul. There's a worldly counterfeit of which we must beware, an outward fun and frivolity that hides an aching heart. Solomon compares the joy of the world to nettles under a kettle that flame up and then fade away. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. But ours is the enduring joy of the Lord, a mirth that has no bitter spring. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. It begins with the assurance of our forgiveness and acceptance by God. It grows as we read God's word and ponder his goodness. We rejoice in his love. That's a quotation from Psalm 31. Joy is strengthened by the suffering that removes all other sources of consolation. We learn that God alone is the source of eternal peace. Joy finds itself not in the gifts that God gives us, but in the giver himself. When God fills our vision, we can find greater joy than we can in our own well-being. We can sing with David, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when grain and new wine abound. This is the joy that reveals itself in strength that gives itself to others. It enables us to give ourselves to love and good works, to enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and sin some to those who have nothing prepared. That's a quotation from, uh, from Nehemiah. See, that's what Bible teaching ought to do. It ought to send us out with colossal joy. That's our strength. So I, I'm sure that all of you know that Negro spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Now, that was penned by slaves as they worked the fields. And what I just found out this past week is that there are Dozens of verses to that song. I've only heard of two or three. Because as they worked the fields, they would make up verses. Nobody knows the pain I feel. So forth. Nobody knows the work I do. Nobody knows but Jesus. And the last line of that poem, at least the only one that's been preserved, goes like this. Nobody knows the joy I feel. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the joy I feel. Glory, hallelujah. That's the joy of the Lord that is our strength.